0: Hi everybody, Teddy here to preview our latest Teddy Talk podcast. I have to tell you, it's been wonderful to hear the outpouring of support from my podcast. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, please do so if you're so inclined. Very helpful. This is a whole lot of fun. Okay, on to today's episode. I have known Dina Metzger for about 15 years, and I've known about her for many more. She's been both a teacher and a role model of mine. In some ways, it's, it's hard to describe Dina. Probably the most accurate thing I could say is that she is unconventional. And in a way, that's too bad. Because Dina, in addition to being a writer and author, her latest novel is A Rain of Nightbirds, is also a teacher, a global activist and healer, a warrior woman, and a shaman in the classical sense of being a bridge from indigenous ways to the modern world. And I personally believe the world would benefit from more of this kind of unconvention. So we're chatting on a hot day at the top of one of the canyons outside of LA. We've got the company of a puppy named Sueño. That's a bit frisky, some of the time, so we enjoyed that as well. Dean is one of those folks that I learned something from every time I'm around her. Today was no exception. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And hello, everyone. This is Teddy Tannenbaum with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. Our theme is Meetings with Remarkable People, Lessons in Leadership and Life. And today, I am delighted to be sitting with a mentor and a friend, Dina Metzger, a writer, a teacher, a healer, and most prominently, a global activist, Dina uh, just such a pleasure to have your company here.
1: Well, it's a delight to be here with you and doing this. this is wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It's uh it's great fun. I, I um uh, you know you you've had such a, a rich and wonderful life to this point and not ending anytime soon. That's so right. so uh I thought for the for the benefit of our listeners you could give us a little bit of a background, you know, kind of just where you grew up and 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 What your path? How you how you found your path? So um,
1: (laughs) I come from Brooklyn. I mean, that feels like a major statement because Brooklyn is a culture, and uh, and it has a certain um, attitude, I suppose, of uh, being very real and having a lot of humor. And in the place where I grew grew up, which was essentially Coney Island and Seagate. Seagate was surrounded by ocean on three sides. It was a very narrow peninsula. So I spent my childhood with the ocean. Mm -hmm. And if I would speak about anything that trained me as the person that I've become was that I started walking around the neighborhood later and later at night for longer and longer times so that by the time I was... And say sixteen or seventeen, I would go out somewhere about eleven o'clock at night, and it didn't matter if it was snowing or it was hot. And I would walk. Uh, I'd walk the neighborhood. I'd walk the ocean. Um, I'd go to the lighthouse, and, and um, uh, that that formed me. And I walked with a question in my mind, which is, how do you become a writer? And it occurred to me that writers know how to walk. They know how to walk and they know how to observe. And then that process of observation, external observation, enters right. into internal observation. And then one looks for the words to, to describe this. Yeah. So that was my education. I went to school like everybody else, but that was my education.
0: And I know in, in the times that we've spoken, and I've uh, been a student of yours in writing classes and workshops, language is really important. Very important. <laughs> right. What you say and how you say it, and the choice of words you use. So uh, curious about, you know, I was in, I spent time in Coney Island. I used to take the subway there. This is hours and hours from north of the Bronx all the way to Coney Island. And, uh, but I was there during the daytime. I don't remember walking around there at night. And uh, I remember being in Long Beach. I spent some summers there and walked around in the evening for sure. So that, it's interesting because you have all that time growing up there and and commuting with that type of nature. And now you live at the top of Topanga Canyon outside of Los Angeles. And it's a whole different set of nature here. What drew you to this?
1: Well, originally, it was as far as my ex-husband could get from his family. He,
0: <laughs> it was a practical decision.
1: Very. He had come out to intern and have a residency at Harbor General Hospital. He was a physician, and he thought California was as far as you could get from Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't last long.
0: Right, there you, you
1: know. go. I mean, the family came out, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It was an important switch for me because I thought that living in New York was the most thrilling gift that I could ever have been given. And I would walk in Manhattan and actually say pretty much out loud, how could I be so lucky as to be born in New York? And when I came out here, it was an entirely different situation. And my shorthand of it was um, that it seemed like you could come out here, change your name, dye your hair, and become anyone you want to become.
0: Right. And you put a hyphen in between two, two different job titles, and you were good to go. There you go.
1: And, um, And then, over time, as my consciousness developed, then I realized that I wanted to be as far as possible, both as a writer and as a person, from the centers of power and from the kind of ego involvement that people have in power and prominence. And that being here, I was really free to find another path.
0: So this was... uh a step of liberation for you.
1: I didn't know it would be, but yes, it definitely was. And I came out here on the night before my twenty-first birthday, so had that kind of right. <laughs> There's some magic to it, right there. It.
0: There you go. On right. the precipice of something. That's right. Yeah. And and you knew you wanted to be a writer. I knew I
1: wanted to be a writer. Um, I never thought I'd be good enough, uh, <laughs> and worried about that yeah. a lot. And I think the way that played out was that I am not a conventional writer and it took a long time to develop the voice and have the courage of the forms that appeared to me, the use of language, the um, subjects, the things that I looked at. And so I've always been on the edge. And um, these days... That's a really good thing, so that I just, for example, did a a series of, of workshops or circles when I was traveling with my latest novel, A Rain of Nightbirds, and so in the circle my question was, what is the edge beyond the edge you are already walking that is calling to you now in these times? So, Mm. now um, being on the edge um, is, well, where else would any conscious person want to be given the times? Right. Right.
0: You know, in Venice where I live, uh, you see a t-shirt every once in a while that says, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Right? That's wonderful. I
0: I, I love living on the edge, right? Right. Uh, Because it's the best view. Uh huh. Right? right. It's the best right. view, and and uh, you when you're on the edge, you
1: also commit. Absolutely. Right. It is a it is a commitment yeah. to be on the edge. Yeah.
0: So, as you as you develop as a writer, I know you published a lot of poetry, novels, and then you teach writing, right? Uh, I think um, writing for your life was one of your first books, right? Yes, I remember it had a profound effect on me. Oh, good. Because um, you ask, I remember you ask in that book about, think about your life and something about saying it in five sentences.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Was that from that book? Why not? That, why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember um, an exercise, because in, in your writing class, in the workshops, you know, you'll speak and and then you'll challenge us with an exercise that really forces us to say, you know, why are you here? Right. Why are you here? Right. And right. why are you here? Right. And that helps you get down to really, to answer that right. question. Ultimately, That's the ultimate question. Why are we here? Yeah. And then what do we commit to doing with the time that right. we're here? Right. 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 One of the things exactly. that, that has always impressed me uh, was your commitment to global activism. So I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. How, how, you, how you evolved into a global activist?
1: I think it's from saying, why not? Um, How did I get involved? I've had a really remarkable life, and the way I can talk about it now at this age is that some energies, forces, call it spirit, whatever you want to call it, um, found me and realized that I would serve as best as I could if I heard what it was that was necessary at at the time. And so um, we just had uh, an intensive, a a week-long intensive, a healer's intensive, and it's about, you know, what it means to be a healer in these times. That means you're trying to bring healing to people, but you're trying to bring people, you're trying to bring healing to the community and the environment. At, at, at the same time, um, so that I think about healing as one gesture that's good for everything, and that's the standard. If it's good for you, but it's not good for the earth, it's not a healing gesture, right? And if you're so disconnected that it's good for the earth or community, and but it's not serving your own spiritual life and way of being, that's not good either. So there's a sense of a holistic um, way of thinking. And the, the difficulties of this time have always gotten to me. I think I became an activist because my heart is broken and because I have no skin whatsoever between the way people on the earth are suffering and my own and my own feelings so we happen to have a really remarkable i think one of the most remarkable journalists um of our time with us at at this um event and um he's an environmental journalist and so we learned um what was what is Really going on. In the way that my characters. You, and your
0: face tells me that you were a little bit shocked and surprised by some of this.
1: No, I wasn't. It, it, because I have, in this novel, A Reign of Nightbirds, the two pro- protagonists are climatologists. <laughs> so he, there it was, you know, he was speaking about what they knew, but. A, and like them, he read all of this stuff all the time but I didn't read all of it but at any rate we were all thinking we don't know if if anything's possible here if any change is possible this may be the end of all life or at least the end of all human life and when I come up from that absolute despair (laughs) the next question is what can I do to meet it
0: which is really the the uh, the root of all activism is sounds like there's recognition, and then there's the self question: What right. can I do? What should I do? Right. What what do I need to do? And or what am I called to do? Right. Because I'm listening
1: to something that may be beyond my intelligence. Because I don't feel that we have the intelligence anymore to solve this problem. So we're going to have to hear something from elsewhere, and perhaps different people have different abilities to understand different languages, so to speak. Yeah. From beyond themselves. Yeah. Not human
0: languages. And uh, just for the listeners in the background, that's Sueño, who is a...
1: Six-month... 6, month, <laughs> six who is month. A six-month-old husky shepherd. We don't know what. What? She was found abandoned and... Uh, She has, uh, if she has wild in her, we see it because she's the most intelligent dog I've ever seen.
0: All right. And you've seen a few dogs. I've seen a few dogs.
1: She is now dipping a toy into water because that's a great way of playing, she's discovered.
0: All right. We're happy to have Sueño in the room with us.
1: And Sueño, for those who do not know uh, Spanish, means dream.
0: Dream. And of course... What a great segue because dreams are an important part of your life. I know in in, in uh, Dare, which we'll talk about a little bit, and, and, oh, right. and in your writing and the workshops, you talk consistently about calling in spirit, and you refer to dreams that you've had. You're a very active dreamer.
1: Not as active as some of the people who are around <laughs> me, but I've had, Enough dreams to guide me. Right. And so you know, a dream might come and um and i I can live with that dream for
0: years when uh, I know in the past that that uh, you've talked about your dreams, and people have said, Well, what does that mean? And so so people ask you, well, what does that mean? And you've often said, well, I don't know. And just the vulnerability of being able to have those dreams speak to them without knowledge of what you're supposed to do. Right. And let let that unfold. That was always remarkable to me.
1: To let it unfold and also to bring it to a conscious community who can help you think about it. And in what we call the old, old ways and the way people, indigenous people, met dreams, of the dream comes not for the individual, is not psychological, and comes for the community. And so if you have a profound dream, um, everyone who's in the room listens to it as if it came to them in particular. And then as if it came to the community... Um, in, in so particular. it's left
0: to the community then to take that in and interpret that, what do we do with this information?
1: And live with it and work with it. Right. Yeah.
0: There's a wonderful uh, Japanese proverb that goes, none of us is as smart as all of us. That's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it.
1: What I love about dare or counsel is that the more diversity, the greater the wisdom yeah. <clears throat> and the other is that we always listen um or respond in counsel with stories no guru no wisdom you know no footnotes right. <laughs> none of that just what has been your experience with this question what has been your experience what's your experience pure experience pure experience no judgment no arguments right yeah. just And then the stories add up. Then you're in a field of stories. When you're in a field of stories, you're in a culture. So let me say to the audience that uh, Sueño is a rescue. We've only had her a few weeks. She was abandoned on the side of the road with her brother and her sister. And they apparently stayed without um, food or water, waiting to be... um, I guess brought back home or whatever. No one ever did come and they had no chips. They had no collar, nothing. So um, she makes a lot of noise because she just needs all that attention. And the crying is that she can't bear to be away from me at all. So please understand <laughs> that she's outside in a great enclosure um With lots of water and trees and who knows what other animals to play with. But if she cries, it's
0: because she wants to be with me. She's missing you.
1: And she's not being tortured.
0: (laughs) Duly noted. (laughs) You know, you mentioned uh, dare or council. If I recall correctly, uh, monthly you hold these dare's here and some in relation to the new moon or the full moon. First
1: Sunday after the new moon.
0: There you go. And it's almost an all day affair, and there's a lot going on till let's talk about the diary for a while
1: so this is a gathering of the community on on behalf of healing, and what is so thrilling is that over the years people come who are seeking healing in some way or another, physical or emotional or spiritual, and they hear about it. I don't know how because we don't, rec- you know <laughs> right. we don't advertise or anything like that. They walk in that gate and people come and greet them and and some of them are going to talk about what is most painful to them. And so, you know, how we hurt or what we're suffering is the most intimate thing that we could say. And there's a group of people, they may have never met anyone in the room before. And that circle is sufficiently trustworthy to bring them in and let them listen, I mean, and listen to them and find something that mm-hmm. they hadn't thought about before that is some kind of path toward toward healing. And it's it's remarkable.
0: It is remarkable. And of course, I was introduced to it along with Denise uh, when Denise was taking a writing workshop for healers. and. We brought our son Jason here, yeah. and I may start crying here. So, uh, Jason was probably—he's thirty-three now. Oh my! And he has, uh, you know, intellectual uh, and developmental disability, profound autism. He's thriving right now.
1: Oh my! Oh. I knew
0: you'd like to hear that. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, because when he was here, when he used to come here fairly regularly, he was probably fifteen, uh, late teens, and it was a difficult time for him. A lot of um a lot of physical pain.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And uh, you know, some self-injurious behaviors. And we'd come up here and he loved the drumming circle.
1: Yes, he did. Right.
0: He right. would he just loved it. Yeah. And and he would, you know, everyone had something to bang on, right? Right. Whether it was a drum or a piece of wood or the ground Absolutely. or their feet or their hands. That's right. And it's all happening and People would take turns. No one said anything. People would take turns taking the lead, and people would follow. And it was uh, extraordinary right. uh, for an hour, right. right? And Jason would just walk around right. and just listen. You could just see, you know, his body would vibrate. Well, sometimes the
1: he did. He did he do some drumming, a, too, yeah. He did the drumming, absolutely. And there was a New Year's Day, I think, that you came, yeah. That, that I remember very particularly because we had to be inside, so it was a smaller space. It was
0: a smaller space, <laughs> and
1: I think he drummed or, or drummed with him. He may have sat on your lap. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So we've been doing this for uh, nineteen years. 19 so years. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, so this was this was in the early, in the first five years or so of this, yeah. and and it was it was a an heal, a healing experience, right? What I what I remember most vividly. Was the community, and you create community here. People come with that intention, and people accepted him into the community, right? You were talking earlier about it diversity. Meant
1: so much to us that you would bring him. I can't tell you, really. It it was constantly an affirmation that we were on the right path.
0: Yeah. All right. So it's just a love <laughs> fest here. Uh, this, you know, you're you're a global activist and a global healer. You know, I work mostly within corporations, and even though my clients may not think so, I do some healing work. I bet you do. one-on-one and with teams, and and it is all about accepting the uniqueness and the diversity, uh, whether it's diversity of thought, uh, diversity of presence, how people show up, and the fact that the community here accepted Jason like that, and that we felt so comfortable. To let him be here, we weren't so concerned about how are people going to think or feel or relate to him. It was like no, none. It was all off the table. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah,
1: I think uh, the way people looked at it uh, was um, they were in the presence of extraordinary parents, and they wanted to know how that worked.
0: Well, that was strange.
1: the teaching you brought. Yeah. yeah. And we talk about it. When we talk about oh, high man. moments at Dorek, we talk, <laughs> we talk, talk about, about Jason every I, time.
0: I imagine we're going to have to have a return visit. I think you know, so. His, uh, yeah, and I think people who have been here throughout will just really enjoy seeing yeah, who he absolutely. has become.
1: yeah. Yeah, the last time he came, he was uncomfortable. I remember yeah. he was physically uncomfortable. Yeah,
0: so yeah. those days have seemed to pass. Oh,
1: good. Isn't it
0: amazing? Yeah. Right? It gives hope to everybody. Yeah. Right? All Is the difficulties. Is he still
1: times. living next door like he was? He,
0: he was living next door about a year and a half ago. We, After a two-year process, we transitioned him into kind of a group home for adults. He's living just uh, in Hawthorne, south of the airport. Uh-huh. And he has two housemates, which we thought would never happen. And he still has a, uh, a chair swing suspended from the ceiling his diet is very you know clean for his stomach and all has all that going on and he has music therapy and Mm. he's just uh he's out in the community quite a bit yeah it's just it's extraordinary this is awesome yeah it's it is awesome (laughs) and it's life-changing it's life-changing for him and for us of course so uh Boy, I'm just inspired now, coming back up here and talking about this. That we're going to bring Jason oh, up here cool. for direct Okay. I yeah. think uh, the the schedule's on the website. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, we're coming back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this idea of counsel, because you always talk about recalling in spirit, and I know I'm uh, I'm on your mailing list, and and I receive every once in a while something will happen in the world that is just it seems like it's so egregious or so off the the chart that that you just get inspired and motivated. To say we need to call in spirit to take action around this topic. And I know you went to Standing Rock. Oh yes. Uh, was that last year or year before? Yeah, before sixteen. Yeah. Can you tell us about that experience? Oh my! Well,
1: Standing Rock is uh, is the great conscience of this country, and the great wisdom, and. um I knew I wanted to be there. Not that I could offer anything. I wanted to stand with them, right? I just wanted to stand, uh, stand with the people. Um, the profound connection between knowing the value of the earth and knowing that we cannot... Survive in the way that we are trying to do, which is um, extracting what is essential to the earth for individual gain, and not considering what the consequences are, not thinking as native people do for the seventh generation yeah. down, um, that they they know that know the value of the land, they know the cost. That it would take to protest. Um, they knew that they had to create a form of protest that was absolutely in line with their values. And so that the elders, the elders did what they know how to do. They built a fire that they would then keep for the entire time. They built the sacred fire. You started in the morning with prayers, and everything that they did to meet what was coming at them was informed by prayer and the relationship between thought and action, between heart and and action. So we happened to get there when the first blizzard was coming in. And so, to wake up in the morning, we knew we had to get there before dawn. We were lucky, we were able to stay in a hotel, in the uh, uh, casino, uh, which later we were able to share with people who needed a place to stay. But um, So we're driving in the dark, it is very, very, very slippery ice, I don't know, maybe it's 4.30 in the morning or 5, and went down this road, five miles an hour or so, and you see all the flags on flagpoles from the different Native communities that that were there. And the snow is blue, white, wow. blue, and all these small tents that are tucked away in, in this little ravine. And we came came introduced ourselves signed in all of that and then the fire is burning and people begin to gather and people begin to gather and people begin to gather and after a while the old man comes out and he begins singing and he starts singing these prayers and you know that you are in the sacred this this is the reenactment of what people really knew about the holy, and um, it's very cold. Yeah, <laughs> it's really we're standing there. It's really very cold, <laughs> like you know, twenty degrees with a wind and stuff. And then the women come, and the women's prayers are different. The women's prayers are for the water, yeah,
0: and um, the whole... Right, because the the big part of that was that underground pipeline was going to go under the river and and their water supply
1: and it was going to pollute yeah and of course we know the pipeline did break right and much more oil was lost than anybody says so the women came out maybe seven of them from different tribes and they're carrying these little copper um, cups with water in them and, and the, um the whole uh statement over and over and over again of, of um, standing rock is water is sacred water is sacred water is sacred and so they came in they you had to take your gloves off right and they poured water right. into each person's hand and then um and and they blessed it and they sang and then we all walked down to the river um, which was a for some of us, a treacherous walk. Sorry about the uh, the puppy, uh, oh, listeners. yo. <laughs> but um, this beautiful thing happened, which was that to go down to the river, you had to go down an incline, and and it was frozen. <laughs> so the men, this makes me cry. The men lined up on both sides. And they held you. They took you down hand by hand, hand to hand with such respect that, you know, everything we've been hoping for about right relationship between men and women <laughs> was right there. Right there. And, the, you know, the, the men were all different colors and shapes and sizes and ages and all the rest of it. But what they had was respect. And it wasn't like they were told to do this. But that's what they did. And each one, they looked you in the eye. It was like like they were passing on something sacred. And then we went down. Each one of us got a chance to go to the water and say our prayers. And then they helped us up in the same way. And then some of the women stood there while the men went down. So on so many levels, this spoke to a greater and deeper consciousness and a way of living on the earth that if we listened to the essential wisdom of uh, the Native American people of this land, the original people of this land, we would know how to prevent the death of the earth and the planet that we are now fostering yeah. with our madness.
0: Yeah, it, it, and of course, as you were saying earlier, if, if, there's a, if our survival is at stake, the planet will survive its the people who will not right. right the planet will figure out a way to survive
1: it may take you know a billion years
0: right, right? it will rebirth itself over it'll
1: be what it is you know yeah.
0: but um the uh it sounds like just an amazing experience amazing. to and be in community
1: the point is the wisdom is there yeah. you know the wisdom is there if we can only open our Hearts and minds to it
0: yeah and and the uh you know the way that the government is structured and the way the power is set up, people seem to have fear of loss of that power, not willing to take a risk to do what may be better for the greater good than for the individual right, right. And that's a sad thing.
1: Yeah. Well, our something has happened to our culture that has just lost oh. um it has lost the life force. Yeah. And so um whatever people are reading, what they're doing, everything that, that younger people are. The that's the life. Oh <laughs> there it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everything um Everything that people are uh, brainwashed by from birth to death, buy this, do this, read this, you know, look at this, your eyebrows are too thick. You know that, Ari, right? You know your eyebrows are too thick. (laughs) You haven't had your eyebrows done. It's like, right? You know, that's like crazy.
0: Right. There's a lot of judgment out there. Fear and judgment. Judgment. Yeah.
1: incredible incredible astonishing selfishness
0: and greed yeah. you know i, I remember just uh, in my own path uh, when uh, when nixon won the first term 68 uh, i was in college i was fairly disaffected it was just a matter of time by the time he won the second election i was in india uh, living in an ashram because I, I wanted nothing to do with this. Right. And and I had, I don't know that I had a choice or not, but my choice at that time was to withdraw to go into retreat mm-hmm. uh, for almost for self preservation. And after many years, as time evolved, it was time to come back out right. and show up in the world in a different way. Right. And that's a daily challenge. How do you show up in the world? in a different way without being attracted to all the look at me, buy me, listen to me, you know, all these different things.
1: By building community. Right. Right. And we, that becomes what's really exciting and interesting, and a dream may come, a story will happen, and there's nothing more wonderful than sitting with, with that. You know, Yeah. yeah.
0: How cool. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh,
1: so because you work with corporations, I have a story that I want to us. tell, not really a story, but something that I read, which I think is a sign of great hope. And a group of scientists, a fairly large and responsible group of scientists, have realized that the Paris Accords are um, not sufficient. Even if we went along with them seriously, right. they're not They're not sufficient. And some years ago, E.O. Wilson um, wrote a book in which he said that the only way that the planet will survive is if half the land is wild, and either in wilderness um, or um, with indigenous people anywhere on, on, on the planet, because they do know how to take care of the land. And so this group of scientists has created something which I believe is called half-earth, and they want governments to sign on to this in the way that they did to uh, or tried to do with the Paris Accords. However, they say it's not sufficient for the governments. This has to go to the corporations, and they will understand that if they don't have an earth, right, they don't have a business, And so to make it clear to them that it is in their, our interest, that there can be collaboration and alliance to save all life. I found that thrilling. And
0: fascinating, right? Yes. Is that that if you can make a direct connection between your profitability and your bottom line to the availability of resources, then you're going to protect those resources. Curious, I know that uh, nature is very important to you from Coney Island to Topanga Canyon and also animals. We used to come up here, there were wolf dogs, maybe wolves at one point. We're not sure what that was. But I also know you spent a lot of time in Africa with the elephants and that's where the concept of dare originally came from, I believe. Tell us about your experience with the elephants.
1: Uh, Well, I'll I'll start at the end. The last time that I that I went was in twenty, was it twenty seventeen? Yeah, maybe twenty seventeen. Um, when I found myself writing that I was going back, and I found myself writing, "I'm going t- to visit the elephant people," and once I wrote that, then I knew I had to capitalize elephant and people. So. Now we're talking about the use of language, right? Once I had to capitalize elephant, then I had to figure out how I went to meet an elephant, capital E, or an elephant people. So then I knew from the way that you go to meet indigenous people that I would request to meet with the chief, the matriarch, and introduce myself and tell my intentions and bring gifts and ask for permission to to be there so i have been going to visit the elephants since maybe 1998 1999 and i first met them in chobe and it was an extraordinary experience it was impossible to believe had really happened but it had And um, so every time I went after that, I went back to the same place Mm -hmm. at the same time of day um, and waited. And every time something happened which was not believable, some interaction, some... Spirit sometimes speaks in a narrative. It creates a story that you know you couldn't have created, and not necessarily the content of the story, but the fact of 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 the interaction creates a bond and an alliance. <clears throat> so the very first time when I when this elephant came toward us and. Looked in our eyes, probably as close as you are to me, Ari, for 30 minutes. um, Eye to eye. Just eye to eye, and a process called trespasso, where you look in each other's eyes and try to understand. Um, I said to that elephant, I said, I know who you are because you come from a Holocausted people, and so do I. And so, and I said, and so my people are your people, and your people are my people. And I held that in my heart, that what is happening to the elephants is happening to me. And of course, what's happening to the elephants is what's happening to people now. Um, Lack of habitat, um, lack of water, uh, being hunted and persecuted, you know, it's...
0: It's really you know, amazing similarities.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Scary. So this time I was going to another place. Um, I was going to uh, a preserve called Tula Tula in uh, South Africa, and it had been started by a really remarkable um, man who had circumstances had forced him to take in um, a herd of elephants because otherwise they would be killed. And when he came, they were furious. His name was Lawrence Anthony. They were furious and being contained in this new place. So the only way he could deal with it was that he and um, and his right hand person lived outside the um, the boma, the confine, where they were uh, for about six weeks, and fed them and talked to them until. The matriarchs calmed down, His and trust. Then, you know they extended the the confinement until they had the whole place. <clears throat> so now I was going to visit this herd. And um, so I knew that there were two matriarchs. One was um, Nana, the old matriarch, and then Frankie, who is the matriarch in training. (laughs) She knows that uh, Nana will not be around for a long time, and so Nana passes on the information that she has. But also Frankie takes care of... Whatever needs to be taken care of, that Nana's too old to do. So <clears throat> I said to this guide who was there, I told him this story, and he said, Well, I can't make anything happen. I, you know, we can't impose on them. I said, Could you just take me to a place where they might come? And so he did. And we waited and we waited, and, and they did. And it was very clear that Frankie was there to listen. And I told her first I was not an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) I was not going to misuse her culture for my own interests, right? right? But that I thought that our knowing each other might have value to her people and that I wanted to do whatever I could. And, And I never hear words, but over several days... At one point, because it was a terrible drought and the whole story about that. But finally, uh, we were looking eye to eye in in this way. And, and then she moved away, went to the other side of the truck. And then she stopped and she looked at me. And the guide said, you know, she gets a little antsy sometimes. That's how she is. I said, no, no, no. Something else is happening. <laughs> and what I heard her say, whether she did or not, what I heard her say was... Do you have any idea what it is to be the matriarch for this herd when there is no water that I can find for them? And so.
0: This is in a sense the, the quandary of a leader who is expected, who has earned the trust of the herd. And is expected to...
1: That's her That's her job. That's her is to job. find the water. Right. To know the migration routes and to find the water. Migration routes are blocked and the water has been taken. Privatized. Yeah. I took the water. Right? The water was brought to me. As it happened in that particular time, uh, the... Um, The preserve is in a valley, and there are people, you know, indigenous people that are living up on the cliffs above, and they had no water. And they saw the water trucks coming in, and so there was a a riot, and they stopped and they commandeered the water uh, for themselves. And then the preserve where we were, then they they had to go to the government and say, You've got to bring them water, you know. We have to have water and you've got to bring them water. It's know? yeah. So everyone needed it. The people needed yeah. it, the elephants, elephants needed, needed it. it. And you know, the guests yeah. the guests could go home. But the others couldn't.
0: And the guests could go home with the appreciation that there might be water at home. Right, but that may change also.
1: That may yes, and certainly if they lived in um, uh, Cape Town, yeah. right, they'd run out of water.
0: I'm. Uh, it's a topic for another time. But I'm working with some people who are involved in harvesting humidity from the air mm. mm-hmm. and turning it into potable water, mm. just for that kind of environment where the climatic conditions will support that. Yeah, and uh, to try and uh, bring some healing in that way. Right.
1: So I realized that we have to backtrack because there's something that I had to say, uh, which I forgot, which is going back to Standing Rock and the people, you know, were also in in the valley and um, the sun is beginning to come up and when we looked up on the cliffs again that surrounded this valley... There are all the military trucks and the big lights and all the military greed, forces, money and power surrounding these people who are praying around a sacred fire trying to protect the water. Not to sell it, not to profit from it, just to protect
0: it. it. In a grand scheme, if you look at it from a distance, everybody's playing their part. Mm. Mm. Same way. Right? So people make choices, and sometimes those choices are conscious. Sometimes they do just what their parents have done. Mm. I always love the Woodrow Wilson presentation to freshman students at Princeton, when he was president of Princeton, he would say, the purpose of a college education is to help you unlearn everything your parents taught you. Mm -hmm. We make choices, and the folks who are in the military who are there, that's the choice they've made, and that's the role they play. In a sense, that role creates the need for the role that you and others Mm -hmm. come to play. (laughs) It's a yin and yang. Hmm. You can't have one without the other. Hmm. The world's always looking for balance. Nature is always seeking well, balance.
1: I think you could have balance without the military. Yes, yeah. <laughs> frankly, I think that there were choices made. That there are uh, there were warrior traditions, you know, in in our roots, right. and they had a very different. Uh, Well, in in Western culture, it's been very violent for a very long time. But there are sacred warrior traditions that have to do with protection. Right.
0: right? Or as Dan Millman called it, the way of the peaceful warrior. There you go. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But old habits die hard.
1: Oh, very hard. Right. Very, very hard, and we're being asked to engage in an unprecedented change of consciousness, and it's incredibly hard. Yeah,
0: in, in the immediate moment, it just becomes a something that's called breaking news. Right. But when you step back, you realize that there's a there's a huge change. We're 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 smiling at sueños, enjoying the. Uh,
1: she thinks there's a third one, but there isn't. You better take that. Yeah, that's what I would take.
0: There's, a, in the immediacy, there's that breaking news, and it's an isolated incident, incident after incident. But in the, in the broader scheme of things, there's...
1: Ari, could you see if the ball is up there? Yeah, I think the green ball is there,
0: there. There's a major change taking place. And the incremental change, Mm. whether it's detention or separation, uh, it seems incremental, but with momentum, it adds up to a huge cumulative change. Yes, yeah. And and sometimes we lose the forest from the trees on that, and that's why activism is someone has to stand up and say, "This is wrong. This is unacceptable."
1: Well, I'll tell you, sorrow is a good teacher. I try to bring people to sorrow <laughs> uh,
0: in a loving way, no doubt.
1: Ask them, you know, the, the sorrow is their intelligence. What breaks your heart is what guides you, right?
0: Yes. And
1: um, well, you you know that from yeah, Jason, yeah, right?
0: Yeah, this yeah. is, you know, the the work that. Uh, geez, it's been a while since we chatted, so. Danny's uh, led a, a team of medical professionals and I worked with the board of a foundation called the Achievable Foundation. And we created a few years back, eight years ago or so, a federally qualified, federally funded health center, primarily for people with developmental disabilities, so they could have access to quality health care. Mm-hmm. And it was like it was informed by our own experience of taking Jason to doctors who were less than properly skilled, or had proper understanding of how to deal with that kind of a disability. So it was born from that, as you talk about, from that uh, sorrow experience. Right. Yeah. I know that, you know, there's a lot of people who look to you as a teacher, as a healer, as an activist. I know you've also spent time with others who have uh, been inspirations for you. I know he had a relationship with uh, Anais Nin mm-hmm. and with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh mm-hmm. and I think even Carlos Castaneda.
1: Oh yes, so to speak. Oh yes, yes, I did.
0: Yeah, these these are three diverse individuals, mm-hmm. all of whom who brought some amazing work to bear on the planet. Right. right. I wonder if you could speak to any of the experiences you had with with them.
1: Well, Anais Nin is such a remarkable person. And, um she introduced living by dream listening to the dreams the beauty and the wonder of the dreams I think to um to women in a quite different way from the way it was used by male right. psychologists yes. um and she introduced the journal you know writing in the journal I don't think if it if not for Anaïs, that either women or men would be writing journals
0: Journalism. in the way that right. we are now. And you actually introduced the concept of journal writing at, at a university level, right? And, and
1: How do you remember all of I, that? You know, Who
0: are you? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I listened to you. I sat, <laughs> you know, um, I learned a lot from you. I still oh learn a lot God. from you, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. I did the first journal writing class, class at right? California Institute for the Arts. Right, Cal what was remarkable about her? she was about thirty years older than me, and she did not allow age to interfere in any way you know a person was a person and she met them in in uh, in whatever way she could um, and she was anxious to be delighted. <laughs> That, that was one of her uh, attributes, delight, beauty, uh, wonder. Um, and so, um, my friend Barbara Meyerhoff, who was another luminary, a, a um, anthropologist uh, who um, studied with the Wicholz, and actually uh, the film that she made, A uh, Number of Days, about Old Jews in Venice won an Academy Award yes. for, as a documentary. So um, Barbara went to school with Carlos Costaneda. Wow. <laughs> and one day Carlos gave her this manuscript. And he was afraid that it was black magic. And he wanted to uh, burn it. Oh. And so she read it and she said, no, 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 Carlos, this is really <laughs> fabulous. So then he tried to get it. Published, and you know he couldn't. Yeah. So pretty, I told, re- Pretty
0: radical at the time.
1: Yes, indeed. So um, Anaïs was the kind of person that when she lived here half the time, she lived in New York half the time, and she never left Los Angeles without bringing some manuscript, some something to New York, without trying to help someone and, and their work. And so I went to her, and I told her about—
0: You were the intermediary. I was. Ah.
1: And so we had a marvelous lunch (laughs) at at her house. Carlos was dressed not the way you would imagine, very formally, as a um, South American gentleman, you know, that he had been originally— And Barbara and myself and Anaïs was very interested, and so she took the manuscript to New York. The moment that the University of California Press heard that she had the manuscript and was taking it to New York,
0: they then they they were interested. They took a contract, and this was, of course, what became Don Juan and the Way of the Yaki tradition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Teachings
0: of Don Juan. Teachings of Don Juan. Yeah. This was a really profound book of my generation. Yes. It I, opened the door, right? Yeah, yeah it opened the door yeah. to so many things. I remember my brother, um, I mentioned to you, my uh, one of my brothers has been an independent bookstore owner for over 40 years. Uh-huh. And uh, prior to having his own store, he worked with Francis Seloff in the Gotham Book Mart. Oh, my. Right?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh. So,
0: the tradition. What a world! What right? a world! Right, the tradition of the people who came through there. I remember it wasn't um, it wasn't right when the diaries on diaries were published. I think that was probably mid sixties. But I remember him introducing me to those things, saying, "Look at this." It was it was a few years later, but it was like, "Whoa!" Oh
1: yes,
0: this was right. something I had never come across before. Right. Yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, and you've done peace walks with Not Hanh.
1: Well, I don't know that I've done. I've been with Thich Nhat Hanh. I think what I feel best about with Thich Nhat Hanh is I went to um, a conference that he called together in Santa Barbara of um, American veterans who had been in Vietnam, um, Vietnamese monks, Vietnamese citizens, and living here— and American citizens. And he wanted to do, um, you know, essentially sit in meditation, do walking meditation, um, um, sit in meditation, walking meditation tea ceremony, hoping that in that kind of deep, quiet camaraderie with some teachings that he would give, that we could cross some of those boundaries that we... that were created created, by the war. And I sat there a few days, and I went to him, and I said, Ty, let me tell you (laughs) something about Americans, (laughs) particularly the soldiers. They have to tell their stories. They can't just sit. So he agreed. And so we broke into little groups so that at least one of each category of persons was together you know so oh, maybe right, we so. had two vets and, and a citizen and two monks etc and um, i don't remember i developed three questions but one was what brought you here you know what what as a veteran for example brought you to this circle and one, particularly for the veterans, was what is a story that you're living that you cannot bear, that you cannot bear, cannot bear to speak about? And with the idea that we would listen, or try to learn to listen in such a way that we could bear the story, we could carry the stories with them and let that heartbreak, um, which you know, was ending up in PTSD that we didn't know what it was. Then, um, that that might so, be eased to yeah. some extent, or at least we carry them and, and yeah. know that it's responsible. And
0: another way of healing. Yeah. To to be a witness to that story. Right. right. Allow that story to be heard, without judgment. I imagine.
1: Without, without judgment. Their story was our story. Right. So um, there were some remarkable stories told, but here's a story that I was involved in. So I took a walk one afternoon and at this retreat place happened to be like a Chinese garden and there was a little bridge over a stream. I mean it was the most amazing Mm. moment of Asia. And I was coming from one part and there was a man coming in the other part. And we met in the center of the bridge. We did not know each other. We were both from this And he looked at me and he said, without any introduction, he said, I was walking in the jungle, a man came toward me, and I killed him. And I said, I will carry that story. And I have told that story several hundred times. And every time I tell it, I hope that... People understand his desperation, his training, and what it did to his soul, which is what he was telling me, without having to go into the detail. This was, this destroyed his soul.
0: I know you grew up in Brooklyn in the Yiddish tradition. There's a saying that's coming to mind from the prayer book, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall men learn war anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we know the heartbreak, we know how to meet it. That was one of the great gifts of so many that Thich Han has offered us, but to know the, the extreme heartbreak of that war. And that he was able to carry a presence of peace. You know, um, his work in the war, he, he organized uh, young people to pick up the bodies in the streets and give them a proper burial. And when you do that day after day after day, you know there's no reason for this event. And, um, and the Americans think, you know, that, that you're the worst and your people think you're a traitor and there's no place to stand. All you're trying to do is hold, be present, you know, be present to it and have compassion and, um you know.
0: The ability to step into the suffering of others. That's right. Yeah. I think that's a good note to wrap this up on. Wonderful. Wasn't this just fun? This is great fun. (laughs) This was great.
1: And we will enjoy listening to it. Absolutely. (laughs) And I hope
0: everyone who listens to it will enjoy it as much as we're enjoying having the conversation. I hope so. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank
1: you, Ted. Peace.